in Detroit, you know, we still have those big wicked problems around land use and figuring out how the unique opportunities that Detroit holds can really be opportunities that support neighborhoods and support our urban fabric as well. From the Harvard Graduate School of Design, this is Future of the American City, conversations on how we live where we live. I'm Charles Waldheim. We're here today with Sierra O'Leary, an architect and planner who works at the intersection of community design and policy. Sierra joins us today to discuss her work with the Detroit Collaborative Design Center. Sierra, welcome. Thank you. So tell us, what is the DCDC, the Detroit Collaborative Design Center? Sure. DCDC is a community-engaged design office based at the School of Architecture at the University of Detroit Mercy. We have a full-time professional staff that really ranges in disciplines from landscape architecture and agriculture to social work, architecture, planning, and urban design, which allows us to work on a variety of projects at a variety of scales. We work primarily with nonprofits and community groups across the city of Detroit, again, on a range of of projects from small-scale installations to park plans to neighborhood visioning to building rehabs. And we focus on community engagement and participation in the planning and design process, really with the belief that local residents hold the wisdom and knowledge that can really result in the best design strategies for any local neighborhood context. You know that in your work at at the Collaborative You have a deep interest and knowledge in uh, the question of land, uh, the abundance of uh, formerly urbanized land, uh, abandoned, formerly abandoned land that's now in some new status in Detroit. It's, you know, the the narrative in the media has been that Detroit is back, of course, and we see, you know, amazing projects on the waterfront and a range of other venues across the city. But for a number of years, you and your colleagues have been engaged in thinking about and with community partners What's the status of this land and what to do with it? So tell, tell us a little bit about that work. Sure. So, you know, we work with partners across the city um, in a wide variety of neighborhoods. But as you've mentioned, the question of land in Detroit is a big one. We have, let's see, I think the latest that I know is uh, approximately 24 square miles of vacant land, uh, much of which is publicly owned. So. There is a long history there that has resulted in an abundance of vacant land throughout Detroit that I won't get into now, um, although we can if you like. Um, but in, in many places, there remains some thinking and planning to do around how vacant land can be an opportunity to really plan for holistic neighborhoods and become a part of neighborhood fabric, maybe a more loosely woven neighborhood fabric but one that integrates open space opportunities. So we think about this issue at a variety of scales. So we work often with community partners, whether it's block clubs or community development organizations on small scale land activation projects. So that could be a really neighborhood driven small scale park or something a little bit bigger, like a greenway that traverses the neighborhood and activates vacant land while also creating this neighborhood amenity that could have multiple benefits. But we also think about it at the scale of neighborhood planning. So again, thinking about how land opportunities are folded in to a holistic vision that supports the goals of existing community members. But then we also think about it in terms of city scale infrastructure. So how can we think about opportunities for green stormwater infrastructure or 
solar installations or urban agriculture uh, citywide that supports, again, on the ground community goals while also aligning with overarching city city ambitions and um, supportive policy that can sort of provide the infrastructure to make these city systems operate at both scales, both providing community benefits and that larger municipal, meeting larger municipal goals as well. 24 square miles of vacant land. This is over 15%, nearly 20% of the entire land area of the city limits. It's an extraordinary resource. So in that regard, these are sites that are distributed across the city. Maybe you could give us an example of one particular community, uh, one neighborhood that you've been working with and the particularities of that engagement. Sure. Yeah. You know, in Detroit, there's, there's definitely areas that are pockets of density, and then there's other areas that are pockets of less population density, but maybe a greater density of landscape. So we've been, a recent project comes to mind, which is a project that we embarked on with partners on the east side of Detroit, east side community network, and a group of resident leaders from an area, a collection of neighborhoods self-designated as the good stock area, referencing the good stock of people and housing and land opportunities that makes up that that part of the east side of Detroit. And even within that area, there's a wide variety of land conditions and levels of density, but there are many blocks with a large amount of vacant land that can be utilized to meet community goals. So we were really charged by these community leaders to think about the opportunity provided by green stormwater infrastructure in particular and the many benefits that come with green stormwater infrastructure, whether it's beautification and stabilization, supporting neighborhood identity through landscape installations, also more, you know, perhaps more tangible things like reducing flooding, um, contributing to cleanups of perhaps overgrown areas, also thinking about recreation opportunities. So the, the benefits of green stormwater infrastructure, I'm sure your audience is well aware of, but looking at how the particular conditions in the good stock area, some properties ripe for green stormwater infrastructure in ways that, again, amplify the community goals, whether it's creating neighborhood identity through landscape installations or reduced flooding or otherwise. But the layer that we brought with a, with a whole slew of partners to the conversation too was looking at how city green infrastructure policy and stormwater policy could support those community goals. So how could there be some modifications to policy and like how green stormwater infrastructure is financed and, and regulated that could create more opportunities, for example, for offsite green stormwater infrastructure built by developers who benefit from investing in green infrastructure. So looking at all those different layers of how regulatory measures and community benefits meet in the middle as a win-win solution. You mentioned that this acreage is most often uh, still held in the public trust. It's a, it's a public amenity. It's, it's owned by the city most often. And in your work, is it most often the case, uh, for example, with the, the good people at the good stock, that that land was meant to remain in the ownership of the city? It's meant to remain a public good in the context of your proposition for it? So that's a great question. Um, much of the land, much of the vacant property that was formerly residential in the city is owned by the Detroit Land Bank Authority. And 
their overall mission is to not retain the land over the long term um, and, and to align with neighborhood goals and neighborhood plans to identify new uses for that land or new owners for that land, which is a long ongoing process. In the particular case of looking at green stormwater infrastructure in good stock, we actually looked at a number of different ownership possibilities. That was part of the study. So we were looking at what if the city did retain ownership? What if our water and sewerage department retained ownership? Um, what if there was a community coalition that was able to own the property as a nonprofit? And then we looked at all the other things to consider, like liability and taxes and what that meant for financing and what that meant for meeting stormwater ordinance requirements and, and all those additional layers. And I think one of the things that we often hear is an interest in making sure that there is some community ownership over land-based projects in Detroit neighborhoods so that there can be an assurance that those community benefits that have, are part of the goals of projects like this are assured for the long term. And give us an example of that. Give us an example of how one can build in both, as you say, community ownership, but also a sense of, you know, avoiding the the tragedy of the commons in the sense of the, you know, the, the investment of a community. What, what what forms might that take if it's not purely keeping it in the in the land bank? Sure. Well, I would say one possible answer to that question is that. Detroit is really rich in terms of its community development ecosystem. So there's a number of community development organizations citywide who can definitely play a role in stewarding land opportunities and already do play that role and can also play a role in terms of this ownership question too, to support maybe more, even more grassroots community groups and community leaders who are interested in land opportunities but also perhaps have, you know, a little bit more capacity organizational or, you know, in terms of municipal relationships. This also makes me think about some other work that we've been a part of recently, which is looking at the city of Detroit's process by which people can purchase and permit land-based projects and, and an effort that the city was making to make that process more, more streamlined and more feasible for more people in the interest of, of again, putting land in the hands of outside of the city and in the hands of um, community partners. So part of that work really included a level of community engagement, talking to folks who you know, have been stewarding and shepherding land in Detroit for decades, maybe without opportunities to purchase it or, or steward it more formally, and how to identify more avenues to, to support land ownership by people who have been growing on the land or cleaning up the land or hosting community on the land for years and really making good on sort of the city's intention to transfer ownership to to those stewards. In that interest, I'm interested to hear more, Sierra, about how the people that you work with on the ground, people that live in these neighborhoods, people that have spent their entire lives, they've grown up in these places, how do they view uh, the opportunity of all this land. Can you characterize or give us some some experiences, share, share with us some experiences you've had about how those populations view this uh, resource, asset, threat of the abandoned land and what to do with it going forward? Yeah, I think I think it varies just like anything in, in any population. So for the example, in the Goodstock area, there's a group of neighborhood leaders who really 
have identified land as an opportunity that can help them meet some of their community goals. And then similarly, in another neighborhood where we've been doing some planning work more recently, we've looked at a layered approach to land opportunities that, again, support a holistic vision of community members for their neighborhoods. So what does it look like to have larger scale landscape solutions that might look like green stormwater infrastructure coupled with smaller projects like passive pocket parks, coupled with more formal park space improvements? And how can there be a a sort of knit network of different types of open space that contribute to the other components of the neighborhood, like housing and commercial, et cetera, and together sort of create this holistic neighborhood fabric. So I think it varies by neighborhood, but the opportunity, which has been an opportunity for some time, is how to really make the most of the land. Because we know that we're not going to rebuild to a previous level of density. So how can land be a part of our future? And I think, you know, many, many community partners who we work with um, share that vision. But it because the landscape varies by neighborhood, there's sort of different levels of, of that vision as well. It's true. Incredible, uh, incredible diversity across the city and neighborhood by neighborhood. It strikes me, Sarah, in your description of the work, often, is it fair to understand your work in part is kind of mediating between, uh, on the one hand, giving voice to community interests and desires, but also engaging with the public sector, right? I mean, uh, uh, these are often communities that are not really you know, burdened by quite a lot of planning services is the sense that I'm getting. Uh, and so in that sense, I'm interested to know like how you identify the communities that you work with, like literally how do you decide and given the enormity of the challenge and the, the number of neighborhoods and also how, like, how do you go about, um, you know, arriving at consensus outcomes or recommendations in a context where I'm sure these communities are not all of, of a single voice. Sure. Well, first, I'll just state that we're not giving anybody a voice. They have their own voice, but we are uh, working with our community partners and in turn residents who are sort of in their focus areas to enter into a dialogue, as you're saying, between sort of what's happening on the ground, what are community needs, what are community opportunities, what's already amazing strengths in those communities, and then how does that interface with some of the mechanisms of bringing those land opportunities to life. So we are most often invited into projects and partnerships by community development organizations and nonprofits who are really on the ground in these neighborhoods, which makes a big impact on how we do our work. So we operate citywide. We're not necessarily, we definitely have a home base in Northwest Detroit and really strong relationships there, but also it's really important to be able to work with our community partners who are rooted in, in every neighborhood and rely on the relationships and, and community networks that are so essential to their work as well. So more often than not, we are invited into neighborhoods rather than you know, choosing where to work. That said, there are, there are some projects that are perhaps more research-oriented where we're thinking about these larger municipal city system issues and there are neighborhoods that are the conditions make sense to, you know, focus in on that work. So for instance, we did a whole study looking at how to bridge opportunities between high and low density neighborhoods in Detroit. There's a number of instances where there's like a concentration of density of commercial activity of strong, stable housing Um, adjacent to an area that has perhaps more vacant land. 
and how can there be a shared assets across those areas? So we had, you know, that condition exists across Detroit. But one of the things we also look at is where the work is already happening on the ground. So for instance, we're thinking about given the last year and beyond opportunities to plan for community resilience broadly defined and specific to Detroit neighborhoods. And we hope to partner with groups who are already thinking about those issues. So places where community organizations are already focusing on resilience and health equity and related questions so that we can sort of work together to tackle those bigger issues. To those uh, relationships, to those communities, you're bringing experience, you and your your colleagues as architects, urban designers, landscape architects, planners, policy advocates. Would you describe what you then provide or what you bring to those that already have their own voice? Is it primarily technical or professional in nature? Is is, is the role of the DCDC that it provides uh, in a not-for-profit context a kind of technical or professional uh, capacity? As you've said, I mean, these are communities that are already well-organized. They're, they're obviously well-led. You're partnering with organizations, both philanthropic foundation organizations, but also uh, elements of city government and other forms of governance. And in that context, it strikes me that a part of what uh, a part of what you're bringing is the ability, the tools of the designer in a way. But is, is that a fair understanding of what you're doing? Yeah, definitely. So we do have multiple disciplines that work in our office and we do bring that lens of technical expertise, trained expertise in architecture, planning, and beyond. And we also bring 25 years of experience working with Detroit community partners and communities around issues that are specific to Detroit. So, so I think that history is an important thing that we bring to the table as well, and that cross-pollination of knowledge. The other thing that I think is a niche that we fill or offer is really the community-engaged design piece. So working with community members, residents, other types of stakeholders to you know seek their wisdom and knowledge in the design development process and then really serve as a bridge to make sure that their knowledge and wisdom is meaningfully incorporated and folded into the design or plan or whatever the outcome is, which is a skill. And it's something that more and more people are doing and talking about and valuing, which is so great. But it's something that that's really the focus of our work is how can we bring that community engaged design piece of the puzzle. And as you're suggesting, sort of bridge those on the ground conversations with outcomes. And then, and then in some cases, how does that then tie into larger citywide conversations or municipal conversations as well, which again, many of our community partners are already a part of. And from that, is it safe to assume that you have a, a long queue of communities that would love to work with you? I mean, it strikes me that, the, I mean, on the one hand, we, you know, we, I'm impressed by this 25-year history, as you say. I mean, you've obviously both, you know, University of Detroit Mercy as an institution, but also your school and the collaborative itself have built up quite a lot of trust over the course of that quarter century. And a part of what you're describing is that you're leveraging that relationship. You're leveraging that trust because you have been there. You, you've been on the ground. You've been in the neighborhoods. But it strikes me that given both the enormity of the challenges, but also the, the just the scale of the of the abandonment, uh, it strikes me that there must be so much more work that could be could be done. Well, we actually do have a queue that that is true, which is partially just because we only have so much capacity at any one given time. But I, you know, I think that 
as in any city, there is an ongoing need for community-engaged design and an ongoing vision by community members for how to improve and enhance their own neighborhoods. So if we can play a role in supporting that vision and sort of maybe providing some design translation services, I don't think that's going to dry up. I think that's going to be an ongoing need in Detroit as as anywhere else. And again, I think that we really benefit from this ecosystem of, of community development in the city that shares similar goals and sort of has hold the vision for for those neighborhoods as well. In that regard, of course, in addition to community engagement and you know I- innovating with respect to how one engages with community, which has been, a, I think, an important legacy of the collaborative. In addition to that, and also the planning and policy work, you're also uh, helping communities to realize projects. You guys are building things. You're getting things in the ground. And I think that in some ways also distinguishes the success of the collaborative relative to you know other forms of the delivery of, of these kinds of services. Can you share with our audience a, an example of a project or two where the, the delivery, the realization, the kind of building, the getting in the ground of something, you know, left an impact community that you were working with? Sure. Well, there's one project that I reference a lot, which is a long-term partnership. It's also a good illustration of long-term partnerships and relationship building with our peers and community development. It's a project with in partnership with a group in Southwest Detroit that really focuses on channeling the creative energy of youth to um, meet locally defined community development goals. And the creative capacity of youth takes many different forms in their context. So sometimes that means low rider culture. Sometimes that means media arts. Sometimes that means street art. And they, over the last decade plus, have been working physically in a one-block area where DCDC was involved, you know, a decade ago before my time, supporting a vision that they had to transform an alleyway into a street art gallery called the Alley Project or Tap Gallery. And it was really an opportunity to celebrate the local culture of street art and create this gallery of um, well-known street artists along garages in their particular alley, but also activate a vacant lot, again, land activation, and a garage as a workshop and gallery space for kids who are developing their skills as street artists. And more recently, they acquired a small commercial building, the end of the block, that was once a square dance dress factory. So when they got it, it was full of petticoats and sewing machines and silks and things like that. And Of, of course it was. Yeah, square <laughs> dance dress factory. <laughs> right in the middle of the neighborhood. So we worked with them. So it's the organization is Inside Southwest Detroit uh, with the initiative uh, called Young Nation. We worked with them to design a community engagement process so that community members and important stakeholders in their network could have ownership over the design that developed for this transformation of that of that small commercial building into their first year-round community space. So they would have space for programming, um, they have space for their offices, and then they have space for a leasable tenant space so that they can ensure that the building is self-sustainable as well. So they are really partners in valuing community engagement processes. So we developed that uh, engagement process together. I often say that 
we design the engagement process as much as we design the thing itself that comes out of the engagement process. And over the course of several months, engaging their stakeholders in a series of design workshops where, you know, we first set out design intentions and then we developed program ideas and then we started talking about space layout and key design decision making. And when I say they're stakeholders, it really, you know, every community is different and every sort of set of important community members and representative community members varies too. So in this case, it was young skateboarders, young street artists, neighborhood elders who teach art classes in their program. There were some skeptics, neighborhood skeptics in the mix to make sure we had a wide variety of perspectives. There were um, like-minded nonprofit organizations from the larger neighborhood and so on. So just to describe what stakeholder really means in this context. And out of that emerged a design that transformed this building, embraced a lot of local design character from the neighborhood, including street art integrated into the architecture, as well as uh, wrought iron work that's sort of ubiquitous in the neighborhood and also contributed to the overall design aesthetic and as well as a sense of security for this space. So lots of small and large examples of how the community-engaged design process led to the the overall design vision for this space. And this was in collaboration with another architecture firm called et al. Collaborative as well. And so now, now that building is built and it's being used and you know, when I when I share this project, we also show pictures of people grilling in the outdoor patio and, you know, it really being being fully embraced because in part it was designed and informed by those by those voices who would be using it into the future. So I'm interested to talk a little bit more about the history of um, design centers broadly. I mean, so the collaborative has been uh, you know, up up and running and going enterprise for now a quarter of a century, doing good work, building trust in this not-for-profit model of delivering, you know, engagement, advocacy, I would say, but also a form of design and planning services. Increasingly, you're focusing in your work on policy, advocacy, and recommendations. Uh, you've been collaborative for a decade or so now. So what was it that drew you to this role? You're, you're not from this part of the world. You didn't grow up in Detroit. What, what about the opportunity you know, caused you to consider and then decide to, to join? Well, it was really the work of the Detroit Collaborative Design Center that drew me to Detroit. I am trained in architecture and planning and found my course in this world with an emphasis on community development and design. And before moving to Detroit, I'd worked at two other community design centers, one in Biloxi, Mississippi, and one in near Brownsville, Texas, the Gulf Coast Community Design Studio and BC Workshop. And I moved to Detroit through the Enterprise Rose Architectural Fellowship with the opportunity to work with the Detroit Collaborative Design Center. And I think there were two, there were two things. One was my own commitment to community-engaged design and seeing the work of the DCDC as being exemplary in the field and wanting and really striving to, you know, find opportunities to grow my own um, experience to do this good work. And then also the opportunity in Detroit and the work that DCDC was doing at the time and is still doing in terms of thinking about how design really truly supports community goals and works alongside community partners in the very unique context of Detroit. 
And at the time, and, and still is the case, Detroit, you know, is so culturally rich and has so much going on. It's such an amazing city. So that was definitely a part of it as well. But, you know, when I first moved here, TCDC was co-leading the civic engagement efforts for Detroit Works Project Long-Term Planning, which has since evolved into Detroit Future City. And I was really thrown into the deep end, organizing citywide community engagement to inform this large 50-year plan, working alongside community leaders to organize engagement activities across the city. And it was just such an incredible introduction to the city because one, I got to know the entire city, which is big. Um, 140 square miles very quickly, but also got to know this network of community leaders who is like an invaluable network to be a part of and to be in to be in relationship with. And for that to happen so early on is really it was really a blessing for me. And then the level of accountability that we were held to for that work, I think, also um, was challenging, but essential to sort of framing my own experience professionally in the city, as well as you know, putting down roots here as, as a new resident as well. I'm interested to know in the work that you do in the communities, is there a concern about going on along the waterfront or what's going on with the new kind of corporate players in the city and the new forms of economy, the desirability of living in Detroit? Is there a concern that in fact, the city will begin to see the kind of gentrification and people being kind of pushed out by virtue of of these uh, initiatives, or, or are those initiatives, for all their merits, not immediately evident in the depth of the communities that you deal with? We work across town in a range of communities, and I think the real question is, how can the momentum that's been building in the city most appropriately show up in different types of neighborhoods and beyond the city center? So that's something that the city of Detroit and the planning department has really focused on over the last few years is looking at how the new opportunities in Detroit show up in neighborhoods again outside of the city center. And what's important to note sort of in the context of your question is how that momentum and how investment in the neighborhoods can support existing residents and be defined by locally driven goals as much as they are by, you know, larger city moves as well. That's often sort of the space that we find ourselves in too, is working with community partners outside of of the city center where that momentum is really very visible and working to identify how design and planning can hit the ground in different neighborhoods that aligns again with the unique character, the unique conditions of every neighborhood and really serve existing residents first. Ensure that those residents can have a voice in the decision-making as well. So, and then the other thing to say is that Detroiters have been doing this work of neighborhood planning and neighborhood improvement for decades in the absence of larger support networks. So there has definitely been sort of a trust building moment as so much change has been happening. And I think that's probably ongoing, but just, I think an important piece of this conversation is recognizing the work that has come before as a contributing factor in opportunities moving forward as well. So there's definitely, you know, we've been working a lot in the neighborhood surrounding University of Detroit Mercy um, with community partners, block clubs, members. Um, block club is sort of our smallest unit of civic infrastructure here in Detroit, um, as well as institutional partners on a range of initiatives that, again, 
contribute to thinking holistically about neighborhoods. So what does corridor redevelopment look like? What does open space activation look like? What does institutional anchor transformation look like sort of all in one neighborhood? Just to touch on an example of, of where there's been a lot more attention and investment um, recently outside of downtown. So Sierra, now the DCDC is over a quarter century old and has been doing this good work for the good people of Detroit over the course of of that quarter century. The DCDC sits, of course, in a very particular genre of uh, community design center that we can find in many cities in the United States. Uh, That line of work is something that you've been engaged in for most of your career, being trained as an architect and a planner. uh, You've made what seems to be a conscious, well-informed career path both to begin working in that line and now to occupy a a position of leadership with respect to one of the nation's most uh, significant community design centers. Um, In that sense, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on the the origins of community design as a rubric. It's, uh, I think, a very particular formulation of the American city. My sense of it is it comes out of the 1960s and a response, both kind of federal legislative response, but also civil rights response and a a generalized societal ethic with respect to providing communities and and individuals that underserved by the professions with with access to design and planning uh, services. In that regard, of course, the 1964 Economic Opportunity Act and its uh, community action agencies, as well as HUD, Housing and Urban Development, Office of Neighborhood Development, played a role in that. And I recall, you know, in part, the organization of the Architectural Renewal Committee in Harlem from the early 60s, uh, as well as other examples around the country. But clearly, this is something you've been thinking about for a long time in a serious way. So how did you decide to embark on community design as a career path? And what what do you think its history says about where we are uh, today? I decided to embark on this path of community design as a freshman in college when I learned about the work of Rural Studio and Samuel Mockbee. And it confirmed something that I didn't know I was looking for, which was that architecture and design could contribute to community development and work with communities to, to meet local goals. And since then, I've, you know, I actually went back to my dorm room and like wrote a manifesto for my life. And I'm like pretty on track. There are definitely things that have fallen off, but I really am lucky to have had this one path that's remained clear and a priority in my professional trajectory and personal trajectory because this work is so, you know, intrinsic to to myself as well. So this is in the context of an undergraduate course. Mm -hmm. So you're in Providence, Rhode Island, Mm -hmm. undergraduate at Brown. And so which course was uh, Mockby's rural studio at Auburn University surfaced for you? Well, it was a contemporary architectural history class taught by Dietrich Neumann. He will be very pleased to hear this if it makes the cut. And it was in the context of, you know, architectural history from 1950s onward with a moment saved for this, this work of community design centers. And I don't recall anymore, but it may have also included that history of early community design centers that came out of you know, the civil rights movement and a response to urban renewal in the 60s, as you were alluding to, leading up to more contemporary community design practices as well. So the rural studio like DCDC was founded about 26 years ago. So we're sort of the 90s babies of community design centers. But what's really interesting now is that 
there's more and more models for community design and public interest design or whatever language you want to use. And community design centers aren't the only model as, as they were for a number of decades. So there's a lot of different models for community design practice, which I think is really exciting for the field and really exciting for young practitioners who want to enter this field and, and work within this context of community-engaged design. How would you situate DCDC in that cohort? So, you, so we've described, you know, this is a, a movement, it's a, a genealogy that's with us since the 1960s. So it's now over half a century, so over 50 years old. You know, you generationally placed, you know, DCDC in the mid-90s with the Rural Studio. Are there other distinguishing characteristics about that era? Are there things that there are there? Is there a cohort of 90s era, you know, design centers around the country that you could identify with? That's a good question. I, I think there are a handful of others who started around the same time or around the same age so a lot of community design centers started in the 60s, and some of them are still around. Like the Design Center at Pratt is one of the longest-running design centers around. Um, but also with policies and funding changes in the 70s and 80s, a lot of community design centers closed as well. And so I'd say that those that sort of re-came out of the 90s are like the next generation of reviving the community design center model. So Rural Studio is not quite a community design center. It's really a teaching practice and students play a much larger role where it's a very different model than what DCDC offers, but um, similar era. And I'd say that DCDC is in many ways, it, it does fit within the model of university-based design center. Of course, it's evolved over time to be responsive to the context in Detroit and the needs of community partners and identifying opportunities for design and planning to play a role within you know, the changing urban context and political and cultural context of Detroit. But we definitely see peers in other community, uh, university-based community design centers. The Tulane's Small Center is another one that comes to mind. But there's, of course, a network across the country. And then there's also independent community design centers who are nonprofit organizations who are also our peers. And then increasingly new models for, you know, low profit practices or mission driven for profit practices that are creating more opportunities for graduates who are interested in entering this field, but also just models for doing this work. Am I right to understand the development of community design as a practice and the notion of the university-based community design center as a very particular American formulation uh, responding to our very particular political economy and in, in the shaping of cities? Well, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't think I'm very well equipped to speak to how this shows up in different international contexts. Although I will say that, that it's, you know, I also get that perspective too, is that this isn't community engaged design is not so different from, from having a really healthy client relationship and, and doing a really great work in the context of public projects, which is certainly true but it's sort of an intentionality, as you're saying, about working with communities who might not otherwise have access to design services as a way to both build capacity and ensure that quality design and planning that's informed by the local context and local wisdom is for everybody, um, creating that more accessible model for design, which, as we all know, can be a pretty exclusive field. 
Sierra, in your experience being exposed as an undergraduate to the work of uh, Sam Mockby and the Rural Studio in Auburn, kind of opening for you, not, not only a, you know, a professional kind of vocation, not only a calling, but also a, a very specific relationship between the educational institution and the notion of you know, serving communities. You chose from that to be trained as an architect and a planner and committed to this trajectory uh, career in the public service through the university-based design center. Would you characterize your, yourself as a part of your generation? I think you're a little younger than I am. That's probably true. Would you characterize your choice as unique amongst your generation? Or do you see your colleagues, uh, for your, your uh, cohort from school, making similar choices? You know, that's a tricky t- question because the people I've surrounded myself with professionally are peers and colleagues in this work. So I see so many people with like minds so frequently. I will say that I do, I don't know if this is fair or not, but I feel like I, I'm on the front end of a renewed interest in this type of work from students. And we've seen that over the last decade, you know, which is the length of my career, a little over a decade, I've seen a shift in schools trying to meet the demand from students to focus on public interest design and and situate design within this broader community context as well, which is really exciting. Um, And then, so in tandem with that, an increasing interest in, from students in this work as well. So, So I definitely see this field broadening and deepening, which is amazing. Um, And also speaks to sort of the different types of design practices that are emerging and developing that work alongside the community design center model. So as you project forward in your work with DCDC and you see the opportunities and the challenges ahead, what do you see as the biggest obstacles going forward over the next years? You know, what, what, are, what are the real intractable challenges that you're confronting that, that you uh, think that we might be, you know, considering or thinking about nationally? I think there are a few things. So on some of the topics that we've discussed so far, I think one thing that we need to keep at the forefront is what meaningful community engagement looks like as community-engaged design becomes more prevalent and becomes more of a norm in the field, which is excellent that it's not sort of an alternative anymore. It's more integrated into our practice. How can we ensure that it remains meaningful and that residents and other, you know, whoever the stakeholders may be, really have an opportunity for ownership in the design development process. And I will say that those at the forefront of this conversation in terms of design justice have really been advocates for community ownership in neighborhood development and design over the last year in particular. That movement has grown louder and stronger, and there are others we could look for who are leaders in that conversation. So I think that's one piece of the puzzle. I also think in Detroit, you know, we still have those big wicked problems around land use and figuring out how the unique opportunities that Detroit holds, um, using land just as one example, can really be opportunities that support neighborhoods and support our, our urban fabric as well, rather than a liability. So I think that requires an ongoing collaborative effort between you know, that grassroots community um, wisdom, plus the municipal planners, plus all sorts of area experts and, and trained professionals 
to work collaboratively. So I think we've increasingly seen cross-sector collaboration become the norm and become, you know, a place of rich problem solving and just increasing that work, I think, is part of our future here in Detroit, but also I think offers lessons nationally. That's, you know, that's a, a building on an ongoing trend, but is rich with opportunity. And that's where those like multiple benefits of things like green stormwater infrastructure can come to bear. How does that intersect with policy and financing and habitat? And how do, how do we bring all those brains together and, and hit the ground in, in neighborhoods and really impact quality of life for real people? Sierra O'Leary, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. You've been listening to Future of the American City, curated by the Office for Urbanization at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. This conversation was supported by the Knight Foundation and the generous donors to the American Cities Fund. Our producers are Aziz Barber, Charlie Gilmore, Jeffrey S. Nesbitt, and Mercedes Peralta. Music is by Kevin Graham. To learn more, visit fmtac.gsd.harvard.edu.